when history comes to its final culmination, and it breathes its last breath, and we stand on the brink of eternity still to come, that's the point when you have shown patience and faithfulness and commitment and dedication. That's the point where God looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. We're turning to Revelation chapter 13. You'll find it right at the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 13, as we're beginning halfway through verse 1, and you'll find it on page 1927, 1927 of the Church Bible. We come to our final study in the book of Revelation for this year, and next January and February, we'll pick up from chapter 14 and hopefully conclude our studies then. But today's our final study as we come to chapter 13, verse 1. If you were with us last Sunday morning, the imagery and symbolism that John was using showed to us a dragon who was all-powerful and dominant, and that dragon was bringing war and chaos and violence on humanity. And so, we come into chapter 13 and continuing with that theme. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone who is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Let me say that again before we finish. It's important to grasp this. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the parts of the saints. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Over these last eight or nine Sundays together, as we've gone deeper and deeper and deeper into the book of Revelation, what we have discovered is this. 
we have discovered the unfamiliar. We've discovered John taking us to places in our imagination we could never have imagined. And several of those Sundays, he took us into the very throne room of God, surrounded by countless millions of seraphim and cherubim, giving glory and praise to God. And we got to see history that was, that is, and is still to come from the perspective of the throne room of God. And in our mind's eye and in our imagination, our hearts soared heavenwards to see Him and sense the presence of Him who is eternal and infinite and unchanging in His love and grace and mercy and goodness, transcendent in majesty and imminent in grace. And we felt it over these last few Sundays together. And then last Sunday morning, as we got to chapter 12, we no longer occupied the throne room of God. We came back to earth to see it from an earthly perspective. And if you were with us last week, Shelton very carefully took us through chapter 12, outlined for us that from time to time in world history, from time to time, time in current history, and time to time in history yet to come, there will be periods in history when there will be a spiritual and moral battle for our culture and our society and all that we hold dear. And last week in chapter 12, we saw the ascendancy of Satan in the imagery of the dragon. And as you come into chapter 13, that symbolism and imagery is still there. And that's been one of our difficulties on a Sunday morning, getting our heads around all of the imagery and the symbolism and the complexity of the language and understanding what John is talking about. And if you read that passage this morning, and when I said amen and your head was spinning, I'm not surprised. There's so much packed in here. But the question is this, what did it mean in the first century? What does it mean in the 21st century? And are there biblical principles contained in this passage that will help us live in the messiness and distraction of life in a 21st century setting? And that's where we're going. So, look with me, please, at the opening words. And John writes, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, he had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horn, and on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Now, of course, you're asking, what on earth are we to make of all of this imagery and symbolism? The beast from the sea and the beast from the earth signify and symbolize periods in history when a state, a country with dictatorial leadership will persecute its own citizens. That's what's going on. And remember last Sunday morning? Do you remember the major theme running throughout chapter 12? And we see it again in chapter 13 that culture and society run by a dictator will enforce its will on its own citizenry. That's what was going on in the first century. 
Now, let me explain. Around the year 37 BC, before Christ, you started to see in various places across the Roman Empire temples built to celebrate Roman authority and the Roman Empire. And they started around that time for the first time. And it subtly moved, and that's how moral and spiritual values begin to erode. They erode silently, subtly, and slowly. Thirty-seven years before the birth of Christ, there was a temple built to honor the Roman Empire. And then the next temple that went up was to honor the emperor. And then the conversation went something like this. Not only is God's hand upon the emperor and the empire, he leads and guides and directs the emperor himself. And by the time Nero showed up in the year 55 AD, Nero claimed not only to receive the worship of people across the empire, he claimed to be godlike. He was benevolent. He was gracious. He was kind. He ruled the empire. He took on the characteristics of God himself, so much so that he murdered his wife, his stepmother, his stepbrother, two of his closest political aides, and he got away with it scot-free, because after all, he was divine. Fifty years later, in the year A.D. 95, when John is writing, John is writing to Christian people across the empire who are being persecuted. The people who first received this letter may well have had someone in their church who lost their life because of their faith. John himself, when he is writing, has been arrested because of his faith. He's been exiled to the Greek island of Patmos. And what is this passage telling us? It's telling us this, that in the first century, there were, excuse me, there was taking place moral and spiritual and cultural warfare and cultural battles for the heart and mind and soul of humanity. That's what was taking place. And if you did not worship the Roman emperor, you could be put to death. Because after all, didn't you support Rome? Didn't you support the emperor? Weren't you loyal? You're coming across as some crazy subversive. It's time you were locked up to teach you a lesson. And six million people lost their lives during those years of persecution. And John is saying this, that even though you may be in the most difficult situation you have ever faced, even though it may feel like the Roman Empire, with all of its persecution, is like a great sea monster, has all of the authority and freedom to persecute and incarcerate and take the lives of people. Understand this, God is not finished with you yet. And the bizarre thing is this, that today in the 21st century, we name our children after the apostles and name our dog Caesar. <laughs> unimaginable back then, absolutely unimaginable back then. And out of that time of persecution, 
when Christians were being put to death, minimized and marginalized, they were then sowing the seeds that would bring Christianity across the known world. That's what was going on back then. Now, let me take it a step further, if I may. The second part of the chapter becomes a little more complex. We haven't read this passage, so bear with me. If you've got your Bible, we're reading from verse 11. I'm going to jump from verse 11 to verse 16. And he begins, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. The first beast represented symbolically the Roman Empire. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He was fierce. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Talk about powerful. Talk about having influence and authority to do whatever you wished. That's what we're reading there. And then in verse 16, this is the beast from the land. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom, and if anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. And you may just be absolutely giddy at the moment on the edge of your pew saying, Richard, I never thought we'd get to the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and 666. Thank you. I've been waiting weeks to understand all this. Well, if that's you, I'm about to disappoint you, so please forgive me. But what in essence it is saying is this, that in the first century, if you could not raise your hand and worship Caesar, you were considered a subversive. Because that day and age had about it, thanks to the persecution of the Roman authorities, a feeling of being anti-Christ. Christians were arrested, put in jail, and their lives taken. That was the spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit here is similarly the number 666 means this. And Revelation 7 is the number associated with God. It's a number of wholeness. It's the number of completeness. It's the number that stands for perfection, authenticity, credibility. Everything that is good and right and just is associated with God and is considered seven. The 666, however, is considered incomplete and failing, failing, failing every time. That's the message John is giving over. He's saying, even though you live under persecution, even though you've been minimized and marginalized, God wins out in the end. And it may be difficult, and it may be traumatic, but it will not be forever. That's what John was saying then. Now, how do we take all of this and apply it to our own lives today? First century, 
Richard, I get it. I see the history lesson. I understand all of that. I've got the cultural and the contextual backdrop. Thank you. But how are we to apply it today? Well, let me come into the 21st century and suggest this, that when John was writing, John was writing along a similar theme that I'm about to take up and run with. And the theme is this, that from time to time in periods of history which were, which are, and which are still to come, there will be nations and dictators who will be the cause of war and famine and greed and injustice and violence and mayhem and chaos. And in the midst of all of that, how do Christian people respond? Now, in various countries across the world today, you will find that. In fact, I received an email last week from a colleague in China as his pastor had been arrested and locked up. Why? For preaching the gospel. That was it. Now, folks, please don't misunderstand me. That is not happening every day everywhere in China, but it is still happening. In the Middle East, if you're a Christian, you can be beheaded if you fall into the hands of ISIS. It is not just the first century, it is also the 21st century. Thankfully and mercifully, it's not happening everywhere and every day, but it's real. But how do we apply it to us in Greenville today, 21st century? Well, let me try and paint two pictures for you. And the first is this, that in Western society, there are two main views of culture the secular worldview, and the Christian worldview. Now, the secular worldview says this, that as we are mature, sophisticated adults, surely we can lay out for ourselves our own moral standards and modes of behavior. Surely we can trust each other to do that. And that's where the secular worldview begins. And it says, therefore, as mature adults, no one has the right to tell us how to behave or what to do. Secular worldview. And they also go on to say, often it's put like this, there are no absolutes, and therefore we can trust each other to behave. And they tell us that absolutely. There are no absolutes, but I'm telling you this absolutely. Because the secular worldview thinks with their feelings. Now, let me say that again. That's subtle and you need to get it. The popular mindset in the secular worldview is to think with your feelings. If I want it, if it's attractive, if it's desirable, and I have the capacity and the potential to have it, therefore I should have it. And the Christian worldview says the opposite. The Christian worldview says, now hold on a second, there are absolutes. Human life is sacred from the womb to the grave. Marriage is sacred. When you take marriage vows, they are vows for the rest of your life. There are absolutes. There are such things as right and wrong, holiness, righteousness, integrity, character, honesty. They matter. 
And when our society begins to marginalize and minimize godly Christian values and principles set down by our forefathers, we are in trouble as a society. But please understand this, and I want to be a little controversial, and thankfully I'm not this controversial every week, but I want to say it. There is a cultural battle going on for the moral and spiritual values of our nation. And folks, if we are not going to take a stand and say there are such things as right and wrong and absolutes, that human dignity and human life is an absolute, if we are willing to give that up and surrender it to the relativistic thinking that truth is relative and it depends how you feel on the day, we are in serious, serious trouble. And that's where the gospel comes in. That's where it impacts our lives. That's when we must be ready to take a stand. And we take a stand first century, 21st century, and all the years to come. When we take a stand at our homeowners, association, when we serve in the PTA for our children, when we invest our lives in our place of work, in education, and in health service, and in law, and in ethics, and in finance, and in the retail sector, when Christians take a stance, it makes a world of a difference. But please hear this. When you are willing to go so far and go no further, morally or spiritually, you will be considered as odd. You will be considered as narrow-minded. You will be considered in terms of having a phobia against whoever it is that's complaining that you won't go along, celebrate, and condone whatever they want to do. And civil rights has changed to be my rights, regardless of anyone else. And that's the world we live in. Slow, subtle, silent changes taking place. And folks, hear me. If Christian people are not willing to stand up and say, enough, who is willing to stand up? No one. So, when you're asking yourself, what does Revelation mean in a 21st century setting? What does it mean in the messiness and distraction of my everyday life? That's what it means. Christian values are important. They are significant. And when you are tempted, and it will come, when you are tempted to exchange godly Christian principles for the moribund impotence of cultural appeasement, you need to think again and stand fast. Amen? Amen. There is such a thing as a Christian nation. There is such a thing as Christian values. But when you are willing to let them flow on past without taking a stand, we are in serious trouble. That's what Revelation is teaching us Sunday by Sunday. Now, having said all of that, please let me finish with this. When John writes of what was, what is, and what is still to come, please hear me when I say this. 
the future of Western society, the cultural battle for the heart and mind and soul of this nation will not be influenced by the flux capacitor or an entertaining movie, but it will be shaped and fashioned and refined when godly people take a stand and say enough is enough. And when history comes to its final culmination, and it breathes its last breath, and we stand on the brink of eternity still to come, that's the point when you have shown patience and faithfulness and commitment and dedication. That's the point where God looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what Revelation is teaching us. That's why it's important to spend time in His Word that our character might be shaped, our desires, our longings are not determined by our feelings, but by Christian principles and godly principles that matter. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this challenging passage of Scripture. We freely confess there are moments in Revelation when it is hard to get our heads around the imagery and the symbolism that we find there. But enable us, please, as we leave this morning, to leave rejoicing, standing on Your promises, trusting You for our children and our grandchildren and our nation and our culture. Father, take us by the hand. Allow us, please, to enjoy the days we live in, to see you at work. And Father, may you begin by shaping and fashioning us. Father, hear our prayers, for we bring them to you in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Join us for a free meal and a discussion led by financial expert Bruce Owens. Bruce has been speaking for over 20 years on the subject of biblical stewardship and estate planning. This seminar will address how to put biblical stewardship at the center of your financial planning, how recent tax law changes may affect your estate plans, affirming that your financial plans are relevant in these challenging economic times, and leveraging your tax dollars into gifts for church and ministries. More information at First. PressGreenville.org.